It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode of the Single Tracks podcast is sponsored by Glowworm Lights. Glowworm is a mountain bike light brand founded almost a decade ago by two mountain bikers in New Zealand. And today the company offers some of the highest quality bike lights on the market, including Bluetooth control and complete customization through their app. Glowworm's complete line of lights start at 1200 lumens and range up to a blinding 3600 lumens, all at reasonable prices. Save 15% off all light systems on the Glowworm website with the coupon code SINGLETRACKS2021. Shop for lights at glowwormlights.co.nz and be sure to check for the link in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Christopher Blevins. This year, Christopher became the first American man to win a World Cup race since 1994, taking first in the final cross-country Olympic race at the end of the season in Snowshoe, West Virginia. He's also the reigning short track world champion and has notched numerous podium finishes at national and international mountain, cyclocross, and road races. This month, he's got a short documentary film titled The Long Traverse that will be premiering online. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah. Well, so I want to start talking a little bit about your background. You grew up in Durango and participated in the Durango Devo community-based cycling program. How did that program shape who you are as a rider? Yeah, man, you know, it has everything to do with the rider I am and the person I am, truly. Mm. You know, growing up in Durango, you can look 360 degrees around you and see where a bike can take you. Yeah. You know, like I had neighbors who were Olympians, right? Ned over and lived right up my hill. But I also, you know, you could see a bike can help you coach and work in a, in a bike shop as, you know, a skilled mechanic. You can mm-hmm. travel around the world, like filming bikes or something. So it was really like, it's really woven into the community. Yeah. Um, and Devo is at the part of that. And the whole philosophy is to develop lifelong cyclists. And we kind of accidentally get fast in that process. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Well, what is it then about Durango, though, that produces so many talented riders, do you think? I mean, you mentioned there's Olympians, there's, I mean, Ned Overend is there, there's all kinds of athletes that come out of there. Is it the elevation, the terrain, or or is it just that community that's there in place? Yeah. I mean, that's a question I'm trying to answer myself. You know, I mean, (laughs) there's no magic secret to Durango beyond all of the people and in the sheer fact we have. You know, hundreds of miles of trails out the back door. Um, right. But it, it's really the people like Sarah Tesher and Chad Cheney, the founders of Durango Devo, mm-hmm. you know, have created something that parents move to Durango now to put their kids in Devo, like other parents, wow. different places to put their kids in some school. Yeah. Yeah. That's a testament to how incredible the program is as a, as a foundational learning plat- tool and development tool, you know, externally of cycling. That's just, the way in to building confidence and community. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different pieces to that. And yeah, I think, you know, you just gotta <laughs> go to Durango and kind of talk to those people. And then it's like, Oh, okay. That's why. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Super unique. And what's interesting too, I mean, Fort Lewis College there, right? Obviously has like a really good cycling program, but then you chose to leave Durango, right? For college and, and everything. So yeah, again, is it, I guess it's the community that's there, but there, there are also multiple paths, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think, you know, people who grew up in a small town can relate to, you know, looking elsewhere for college. And it was a, it was a really good decision for me. Like my sister, other families out in California. Okay. I wanted to choose a college that I would choose independently of cycling, but at the same time be able to pursue the Olympics Yeah. in college. Right. Right. And just frankly, collegiate cycling is not built really to support that mm. in, in mountain biking. It may be different for track or road in some ways, but it's almost a better path for, for certain individuals. It really depends on where, you know, where you're at. But for me, better to carve out my own sort of individual training and, and cycling program alongside my school. Yeah. And here in San Luis Obispo, I have community and, and friends who can push me as well. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, your upcoming film, The Long Traverse, is uh, sort of set there uh, near San Luis Obispo um, on in California. And I want to talk about, so at the beginning, you kind of open and close with some of your spoken word poetry. So that's one of my first questions is like, how did you get interested in that and, and build kind of the skills for doing that? Well, you know, freshman year of high school, I had a poetry unit and I was like, man, I actually like this. Like <laughs> I've been writing raps, like, you know, <laughs> a lot of eighth graders do, you know? And then yeah. I started to realize, wow, I can actually use this to express some things. And, mm -hmm. and I really like rhyming and all of that. So <laughs> that's where it started. And it's, it's state, it's stuck with me. You know, it's always been just a different kind of outlet to, to cycling, a, a different outlet, a different ex form of the same expression, if that makes sense. You know, there's not really that many intrinsic differences in like, you know, expressing yourself through something like cycling versus poetry and music, but mm -hmm. it's obviously an entirely different medium. But yeah. And then like freshman year of college, I wrote an album that was really like a rite of passage for me, you know, kind of culmination of mile marker 18 the albums called mile markers. And it's like <laughs> stepping out of high school into adulthood. Yeah. And yeah, it's cool now to be able to weave it back into the sport with something like the long traverse. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, do you have other outlets for it as well? I mean, this this seemed like a natural one, right? Like a video and like in the mountain bike world, like we watch a lot of videos and we love videos. But yeah, I mean, do you get to like perform it live or like what what else are you able to do with that sort of passion and, and how do you share it? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've always wanted to have that little, you know, cafe or bar. You can go in and do open mic night and like have your... Yeah community there and <laughs> you know the, the the fact is i can't do everything at once and right now i'm a bike racer right so it means i'll probably be recovering instead of going to an open mic night at a bar yeah but that will be available to the future you know yeah just like cycling is something that kind of sticks with you and you can do it when you're when you're older so is poetry music and writing so right now you know in the past couple of years with the olympics and and everything like I've, I've took a couple advanced, more advanced poetry classes in, in college, mm. which was really exciting to learn about sonic texture and form. <laughs> that was kind of the way to carry that forward. But yeah, for now, you know, it's, it's sort of, it is in the background to, to cycling, but that's okay with me. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting that you, you say you can't do everything at once because looking at like your resume so far, I mean, you're young and you've already done so many like really different things, you know, from like 
BMX to road to cyclocross to winning all these mountain bike races. And the other thing that I'm really struck by is you're like a really talented and playful rider on the bike. And I'm curious to know, like, how does that translate into racing, like that sort of playfulness and and style, if you will? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that the playfulness all comes from BMX in (laughs) Durango Devo, you know, like Mm. the the people like Steven Davis, who's marathon national champion, who I grew up riding with. And I mean, Steven and I riding when we were like 12 and whatever, 15, Mm -hmm. like... (laughs) was incredible. We just like do these insane lines and our coaches leading us and it was all fun and play-based, you know? Yeah. And th- that came from, I think the mix of different, you know, disciplines I dabbled in, um, or really stuck myself in growing up, but, pri- but primarily BMX. And then I think, you know, when I race, I'm actually far less playful than I am every time I ride, you know? And it's funny. It's something I've been thinking about recently. Like my legs are, are locked straight out when I'm descending so I can mm-hmm. recover more. Yeah. I'm never going to, I don't want to be someone who, who pops a wheelie or doesn't know hander in a race because I'm in that race to win, you know? Right. But the second the race is done, if there's a pump track right there and I have any energy <laughs> left, I'll go do it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But yeah, I mean, there's always room even in the middle of the Olympics or something to, to let what you learned from playing on the bike, come back in and help you go faster. Yeah. I mean, has it affected you though? Like where you are right now in your racing career? Do you, I don't know, sort of second guess those times when you're like, Oh, I'm going to go hit the pump track. And then you're like, uh, maybe I shouldn't cause I don't want to, you know, fall and break my wrist. Yeah. Well, you know, I think I've like grown up as a BMX kid, like I've broken my wrist a number of times. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, have literally three quarters of my life of like, learning what not to do, you know, <laughs> yeah. with jump, I probably shouldn't hit. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good at that and I'm not really willing to take risks right now. You know, my career is, is, is bike racing. So I'm not going to go to the bike park and do something crazy, but yeah, it's always like, there's always a balance there and you just got to kind of intuitively know what it is for yourself. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, I want to get back to talking more about the film. So a big part of this is about this Los Padres route in, I believe it's, it's the Los Padres National Forest, right? Tell us a bit about the route and like how that came together and sort of your involvement. Yeah. So I live in San Luis Obispo and it's 45 minutes from the start of the route, which is uh, in between Santa Maria and Cuyama, California. Okay out in the valley on, on the other side of the Los Padres. And then the route, the Los Padres Traverse, climbs up and over the Sierra Madre Mountains down to, to Lake Cachuma, which is which is close to Santa Barbara. So you're like, you could continue for 20 miles or so and get to the Pacific Ocean. Okay. And on the way, you you come from, you know, the, the east, which overlooks the Mojave Desert. You start at 2,000 feet, climb up to 5,500, and like trace the top of this ridge, mm-hmm. which is like, if anybody goes and looks at the film or looks at any graphics, like there's these wavy ridges that just go and go and go. And it's really yeah. an amazing place. And it's, it's right under the nose of a place like Santa Barbara, close to Los Angeles. And a lot of people don't really know what's out there in the Los Padres. Yeah. And the route is 80 miles, 11,000 feet of climbing goes up to over 6,000 feet. Like all of a sudden it's like you're in Lake Tahoe. Yeah. And you don't see, I didn't see a single soul for all 80 miles, you know? Uh, so it's really rugged. And if you're, you know, if anyone's interested in doing it themselves, do, do the research and 
be prepared, bring a spot device. Yeah. But in a larger view, this route, like, yeah, it's an amazing bike ride. It's one of the most amazing one day rides you can do truly, Mm -hmm. but it also is incredible in the like history of the route and kind of the the different stories, which we can get into. Um, I do want to Say, you know, the, the route was established by Dylan Jones, who okay. is a Santa Barbara local. And I talked to him a while ago. And then like Menso, Dejong, some people who are local to Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. I've done it a handful of times. And um, yeah, Dylan, I mean, the route has been there for, for you know, hundreds of years, really, like in, in different situations. Yeah. But yeah, Dylan is the one who first did it, I think, in a, in a day. Mm. And then I was talking to Chris Burkhardt about it and. That was kind of the impetus from there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the film, you know, a big part of it is you sort of preparing and then racing for a fastest known time attempt along the route. So I'm curious to hear some of the things you learned about, you know, the route and about yourself in that whole process of preparing and then, and then ultimately racing. Yeah. So I was, I was starting to say is this is an iconic ride in an incredibly hard FKT, you know, or or Mm -hmm. whatever (laughs) big effort. There's not really a word for the non FKT, but it's it's like the white rim in Moab, but I think it's harder. It's even more rugged out there. But like, I went into this wanting to, you know, establish this FKT and like learn about the area. Mm -hmm. But I, but I really wasn't thinking about what it meant to ride something that's, that has this much history in it, excuse me. Yeah. And how much I could learn through that process. And it really came from Dylan Osleger, who is the, um, another Dylan, not Dylan Jones, um, <laughs> yeah. runs the Santa Barbara Trail Association and is, a, is a, a climate scientist and is really on the forefront of, of advocating for you know, appropriate trail restoration and stewardship as it you know, coincides with like, policy and, and climate change. So mm-hmm. I learned a ton from him. And then the, the primary thing, which I say in the film is like, we think of something like an FKT as going out and, and kind of conquering the land, right? You're like, you right. this route, you're making it through. Mm-hmm. But it's much more beautiful, I think, when you when you fold kind of into the land and you really appreciate where you're riding and the fact that you get to ride there. Mm-hmm. And there's this route, you know, the, the history from the Chumash peoples who were there, the wild wilderness zones established on both sides of the road branching as long along with extraction and everything there's there's a lot to unpack and the bite is just the way in to having those conversations that i otherwise you know wouldn't have and yeah that's been the most amazing part of the process yeah i mean the film is is really different from a lot of mountain bike films and the fkt attempt too i mean like you're in there and it's clear that you're talking to people like dylan oslinger and you know, some of the folks who know about the history of the area. And then even there was one point, I think, you know, you said it was your first time doing trail work in a while. So you were actually like out there working on the trail. Like what did all of that do for you? Like in terms of your attempt, were you able to do that before the attempt or was this afterward that you kind of went back and learned all that stuff? Yeah, that was before. So that was back in March. And what you didn't see is just how muddy (laughs) it was out there. You know, like, so it was, it was good trail work conditions, terrible riding conditions. <laughs> right. But you know, yeah, it, it was, I'm not embarrassed to say at this point, it was the first day of trail work in five years that I've done. Right. And yeah. So many of us take for granted the places we get to ride and mm-hmm. I've been one of them, right? Like I ride so much amazing single track and 
there are thousands of people and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. that go in that single track. Yeah. And living in California now, thousands of miles of single track are burning every year. Like it's just going to happen right. at this point. So acknowledging through something as simple as, yeah, caring for the trail that you love the most, going out and volunteering for trail days, you start to develop more of a connection to that, to that land that the trail is on and understand like, yeah, you're not just shredding that berm just for the sake of that berm. <laughs> right. You can actually, like I said, fold into the land a bit more and it's much more rewarding. It's, it's a much more um, beautiful experience to see the depth of riding in that way, you know? Mm. I think two years ago or something, I would have thought of trail work as a burden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now I see it as a way to, to appreciate riding even more. Mm. And that's available to all of us. Yeah. Interesting. But also in the film, you mention sort of the carbon footprint that's associated with professional bike racing. And I'm curious about that as well. Is that like a new realization for you as a result of this process? Or is this something you've been thinking about for a while? Yeah, well, you know, I wasn't sure what my place was in conversations around the environment. Mm-hmm. Many of us feel that way. We don't know how to be a part of, you know, advocating for clean air, you know, mm-hmm. clean water and a healthy planet, right? It's like, I mean, that's what it is. And we all care about that. But we all also live in a system that, um, especially if you're traveling a lot for your job, like I am, mm-hmm. where your carbon impact uh, footprint is quite high. Yeah. And you know, my job, I'm going to be flying on planes all over the country, but the way to the, that I've, that I've learned from, from smart people to think about where we're at collectively is like, there are systemic problems that individual action cannot solve. Individual action, she's a part of it, but it's about collectively understanding what systems we're, we're occupying and how to, right. how to change policy and everything like that. And I think that you know the mountain bike industry, the cycling industry generally has a lot of work to do there, but it's not something we have to do, right? It's not like a burden. There's so much to be gained from stepping into that conversation. Right. Including, you know, lowering our our individual carbon footprint, but more importantly, understanding how our voice as an industry mm-hmm. can advocate for appropriate policy legislation and um, and people who are out there stewarding the land. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think, I think you're onto something here too. I mean, it's this younger generation of writers and athletes like yourself that are really stepping up and saying, look, we're mountain bikers. We like mountain biking because we love the environment. Like over the years, I feel like mountain bikers have been painted as sort of enemies to the environment by like hiking groups or, or different other outdoor recreationists. And, you know, the fact is like we love riding because we love trees and we love clean water and all the things you're talking about. So that's a really awesome sort of platform for you to be able to help bring more awareness to for sure. Yeah. You know, and, and what I've learned like throughout this project, the large traverse is like, like I said, and I'll say it again, is um, there's so much to not gain, but like reclaim throughout this, you know, it's not something you're going to lose by <laughs> volunteering at trail work or like, right you know, stepping into this conversation. And I think cycling has a lot of, is lagging behind the the skiing industry or, or climbing mm-hmm. that are really at the forefront of, of talking about the places that they get to recreate in. And this is sort of something we're going to have to do, whether we choose to, you know, consciously or mm-hmm. next year, 5,000 miles of single track burn, right? Like it's just going to continue 
yeah. to happen. And, and we're going to continue to lose the places we love to ride. But more importantly, the communities that those trails are in are going to suffer. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm curious to know, is this your first FKT attempt, your first major one that you've done? Yeah, I, I rode the right rip, the white rim solo in a day. It went pretty hard, but like didn't wasn't going for that. I was just trying to do this six-hour workout my coach had oh, wow. <laughs> put on the calendar. <laughs> it was just a convenient way to do it. But yeah, I really think this model of FKT, you know, on routes is really cool. And it's obviously come out of the pandemic and socially di- social distance events and everything. What I want to emphasize is like, it's not, it shouldn't just be these 80-mile routes that only a handful of people can do in a day. Like, mm-hmm. There's a different kind of FKT, which is like, you know, funnest known time, you know, <laughs> right? and you bring some friends and you bring a sleeping pad and you camp out. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's my hope and creatively where I want to go mm-hmm. with my new production company is like telling that story, allowing people to step into a route like Long Traverse, a route like the Los Padres, and they can choose. You can either go fast and test yourself on it, or you can do, you know an intermediate option, or you can bike pack the long one, but mm-hmm. it's about consciously choosing a route that can tell a landscape story mm-hmm. and benefit the community that that route is in. And all at the same time, like a, a sweet route, right? Like an incredible ride on the bike. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to know too, like as a professional athlete, how is it different when you're racing an FKT versus a world cup? I mean, obviously the crowds are incredibly different. The courses are different. Is one more challenging, would you say, or or are they just different? Yeah. Well, you know, my primary discipline cross country mountain biking is like, is far from six hour ride. It's an hour and a half and it's like brutally intense from the, from the jump. Yeah. But a lot of my training, I do a ton of four hour, five hour high endurance rides where you're basically going hard all day. Mm-hmm. And that's like how you build an engine. And that's exactly what FKTs are is pushing yourself and really digging into that, like that high level that like, you just, you can't go too much above mm-hmm. and you can't go too much below if you want to go fast. So yeah, it really builds fitness and it's, yeah, it's obviously a mental thing too, to lock in solo for six hours versus have thousands of fans screaming at you for an hour and a half. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it almost sounds like you're suggesting that like, I mean, could you potentially be setting those FKTs as part of your training and then like turning around and going and, and racing in the world cup or are these like two yeah. <laughs> sort of separate things? Like you can only focus on one at a time. Yeah. Well, that's something, you know, we, we touched on a little bit in the film, but not that much is like, I had just come back from the Olympics when I did the, mm. the FKT I had like a week off and then a week up in Truckee and my girlfriend's just like riding for fun, goofing off. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, only had a couple of weeks until the world championships. And last thing I wanted to do after the Olympics is do intervals on pavement, you know? Yeah. So that was the perfect opportunity to, to train by adventure and mm-hmm. <laughs> having something like that. I, I learned throughout, throughout the pandemic that picking Strava segments instead of doing intervals or creating a mock race is a really beneficial way to train. It gives you a carrot to chase. Yeah. And an FKT is just that. So I didn't think I was going that well after the <laughs> Olympics. I, you know, I, yeah. I was tired as many people are after something like that. Right. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to ride out the rest of the season. And then, yeah, I ended up having the best month of my life. Yeah. Athletically. And I think that something like 
well, the effort in the Los Padres did set me up for that. Yeah, that's really interesting and, and surprising too, I'm sure, because it's not like, I don't know that that fits into a lot of training models, existing ones anyway. I mean, yeah, maybe you're you're kind of charting a new one, so it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk more about tourism, environmental issues, and Christopher's historic World Cup win earlier this year. Stay tuned. The next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com slash deals. Each week we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com slash deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. And we're back. So, Christopher, we kind of talked about this, but the film raises a number of issues from climate change, the forest fires, and even indigenous land acknowledgments. So I'm curious to hear more about sort of your role as a professional athlete, what you see as your role in all of these issues. You, you mentioned climate change and, and forest fires, and I guess the one we haven't really talked about is this indigenous land acknowledgement. So what, what's kind of your thinking behind including that and how are you able to sort of promote that that idea? Yeah, well, you know, first and foremost, like the opportunity I have um, as a bike racer, as someone who, <laughs> who gets to ride 20 to 30 hours a week and call that my job yeah. is one of privilege. And it's one where I can learn so much through the bike. Like I started bike racing at a <laughs> very high level when I was five years old. Yeah. Jeez. And you know, the bike has always been a classroom of sorts, you know, mm. and I'm just realizing now that the depth of, of learning that can come from, from riding, you know, or, or stopping, mm -hmm. to, you know, and looking around after a ride sometimes is really immense. And it's also like, you know, my experience riding and racing is very different than someone who's just getting into it for the first time. Mm. And that's, that's special, right? That the bike has such a diversity of experiences people can have. Mm -hmm. And now with that, you know, with the fact that I can learn so much through the bike, that's the opportunity that is truly a responsibility in some ways, but, but a, a special thing that I can, that I can undertake. Right. Mm. And I have a lot of indigenous friends on, on the Navajo Nation and um, one in, in particular who's on the, from the Blackfeet Reservation, McKaylee Oliver, who's in the film. Mm -hmm. And learning about how the bike is a form of expression and, and culture for them, mm -hmm. you know, that's it's the fundamental same, you know, feeling of just riding your bike. But on the Navajo Nation, the, the trails that are there that people are, are building or rebuilding mm -hmm. were initially shepherd trails, you know, for sheep and, and horses. Mm -hmm. And for, for centuries, the Dine people have, have used those trails and that the bike is just a way to continue that tradition. And it's something that is entirely beyond the bike, right? Like it really is. And it's what I'm talking about with a connection to the land. And there's no better people to learn from and to lead these conversations than indigenous peoples who've you know, stewarded the land for centuries and have been yeah. forcibly removed at times. Right. Mm -hmm. So as far as that relates to, to riding your bike, you know, it's does, right. It's here. And it's like, yeah. it's one way to get out on the land and to have these conversations. So yeah, you know, there's, there's continued learning along this vein that I want to go on, but I've, I've, I'm fundamentally stepping into an understanding that like indigenous leadership and issues of, of the climate is really important. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's really timely as well. 
I'm curious also to hear sort of your take on how we can balance the positives that tourism can bring to an area and also the impact that that has in terms of our carbon footprint on of travel and also the strain on local resources. Like what's kind of the, the way that we can balance those two things out in your opinion? Yeah. So, you know, I'm relaying a lot of what I've learned from, from Dylan and the protect our winners crew and just to, you know, run down kind of the statistics. And this is especially relevant to California and the Western States, but Outdoor recreation is a, is a bigger industry as far as jobs than than extraction. And, you know, there's a lot of dollars, $900 billion for the outdoor industry in the United States. And there's a powerful voice there. And it, like I said, it supports a lot of jobs. It is not perfect, obviously. I mean, that includes snowmobiling and, and motorsports that mm-hmm. do have a high carbon footprint and still run on fossil fuels. Right. But in a place like the Koyama Valley that has sort of transitioning out of oil towns there do not have many opportunities beyond extractive industries and monoculture carrot farming that you know comes from Bakersfield. we touch on this a little bit in the film the koyama used to be essentially a swampland as i understand it and it's a critically overdrafted um, water basin mm-hmm. and now it is dry and brittle and there you know this is a this is a big thing to to get into, but outdoor recreation is just one solution that can potentially supplant extractive industries, right? Mm, right. It includes horseback riding, it includes hiking, it includes riding. And something somewhere like Koyama that's beautiful, you know, accessible to, to major populations, is really a great place to to build trails sustainably mm-hmm. and to let the local community drive it and to, you know, answer the call and to, to create and livelihoods for those people. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is what I'm learning as well in understanding these environmental issues is that, you know, there's no such thing as no impact, right? I mean, just like the fact that we are human and we live, like we're going to need food and we're going to need, you know, a place to go to the bathroom and all that stuff. And so it is a matter of like, what can we kind of replace if it is this, you know, if this monoculture agriculture or it's, you know, extractive industries like outdoor recreation. Yes, it's going to have an impact, but it's going to be much less than sort of these things that hopefully it's replacing. So that's, that makes a lot of sense. Totally. And it's a way into, in the same way, you know, in a microcosm, I was able to learn about these things through this one bike ride in the Los Padres on an aggregate level, outdoor recreation is a way to, yeah, begin thinking like, Oh, um, how about creating community gardens or you know, local food resilience mm-hmm. or food sovereignty for, you know, indigenous communities? How do we support those efforts, you know, for those communities? Like that's reachable from the outdoor recreation um, world. And I think it, like I've said before, it colors in more beauty to like what it means to be a cyclist or whatever you are out on the land. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, earlier this year, you signed with Trinity Racing, which is a team that takes a pretty unique approach to racing across a number of cycling disciplines. Why did you decide to join the team? Yeah, you know, it was a good opportunity for me to try different things, kind of have a little more freedom to Mm -hmm. hop in a road race, race some cyclocross, and uh, think of the race calendar as a puzzle. And I can, you know, put the pieces down myself. And I think it, yeah, it was a good, it's a youthful team, but it's also got a lot of, you know, people who can throw their weight around against the pros. So it's been a lot of fun and it's cool to do something like the Tour of Britain in between the World Championships and Snowshoe World Cup. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I wanted to talk about your win at Snowshoe because it was a huge one for U.S. mountain biking. Were you thinking about sort of that, I guess, that accomplishment at the start of the race? Like, had you been tracking the number of years it had been <laughs> since there was a, an American to win the cross-country uh, World Cup race? Yeah, I was well aware. Really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, I mean, it was on the forefront of my mind to break that drought. The biggest thing I wanted to do in my career, truly. Oh, wow. You know, and, I mean, alongside my goal now, which is win a, win a gold medal at Paris Olympics. And, but yeah, you know, for my entire life as a, as a mountain biker from age 15, when I started going over to Europe, mm-hmm. I've always known that the U.S. is lagging behind and the women are crushing it, obviously. And the sheer fact that, yeah, they had three spots in the Olympics and we only had me shows our nation ranking. And I think that I'm the first of this wave of talent and development, including, you know, what's been brought forth from NICA mm-hmm. that will continue to, to put us on the top step. Right. And yeah, I've said this before, like my win in snowshoe wasn't just a result for me. Like it was the result of all of this development from USA cycling, mm-hmm. you know, different youth riding programs that put me in that place. And yeah. there was a lot of work, like a <laughs> lot of work. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and it's going to continue, you know, we're, we're not going to, go 27 years without a world cup win now yeah that's awesome well did you think it was going to happen at snowshoe did you feel like that was where you were going to have a a better chance than maybe some of the other races during the year i had zero expectation of winning snowshoe (laughs) (laughs) yeah zero you know i like especially after tour britain i was like yeah well snowshoe's the home race like it'll be great to just be there like finish the season Mm mm-hmm and then like halfway through Tour of Britain, I'm like, yeah, well, maybe actually this will put me on really good form for snowshoe. Mm. And then I had a good short track. I was fourth in the short track on Friday in the world championship jersey. I was like, all right, front row, new game plan. I'm not going <laughs> for the top 20 like last World Cups. Yeah, I'm sticking in the front group and I'm staying there. Yeah. And then even like halfway through the race, I'm in the top five and I'm just waiting, patient. And I'm like, yeah, I feel good. <laughs> and I had a moment, yeah, like wave at my mom and sister as I'm going by. And then a couple laps later, like look at my dad, you know, and who's, mm-hmm. who's been by my side at every race since I was five years old yeah. until pandemic. And this was the first race snowshoe he was able to watch in two years. And oh wow, yeah, that moment when I looked at him and gave him this nod that like, mm-hmm. I'm going to fucking win this. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's awesome. And that's when I like locked in and I knew what I was, could do that day. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I was going to ask you if having your family there made a difference. I mean, it sounds like it, were you able to have a lot more like friends and and folks from here in the U S as well at the race, like more than you normally would? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And it was overwhelming, like doing the short track pre-ride in my world champs jersey. And everyone is like, Christopher, Christopher. You know, it's it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. so, it's exciting, but it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Here we are. We're in the US. I'm not just hearing, ale, 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 die, 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 right. you know, <laughs> as I do in Europe. So tons of friends, you know, so many conversations that were like 30 seconds that could have been 30 minutes there. I just didn't have time. And I really hope we can continue to bring the world to the U S for mountain biking. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Yeah, such an inspiration to all these young riders who, like you said, are coming up through programs that they have available to them now, like NICA and, and all those kinds of groups. So that's, that's super awesome to hear. I understand that you're studying entrepreneurship at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. So who are some of the entrepreneurs that you admire? Yeah, well, I just, I graduated in March, actually. I'm, I'm sticking out slow, but congrats. Thank you. It was, it was, (laughs) it was underwhelming. It was like a slow trail off, you know, from with zoom classes and then, Oh, right. Oh yeah. Um, and then I was focusing on the Olympics and I was like, Oh yeah, by the way, wow. I haven't really (laughs) (laughs) a minor accomplishment compared to all the other things that happened in the last 12 months, but yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it took me five years, four and a half. So not as bad as, as some other schools I could have gone to where I would have had a semester-based system. But anyways, I was really, I was entrepreneurship with a sociology slant. So really like social entrepreneurship. Okay. And I think that's really, you know, how I view creativity and business is like, how can it see a need for society, not just a market, but mm-hmm. create a product or a service that can do good and, and be good. Right. So yeah, there's, there's quite a few people I learned about the micro lending guy who started it. A couple, yeah. Yeah. He, he's, I mean, quite impressive, like just something of that scale that you can create and use entrepreneurship. Right. Obviously drawing a blank on his name, but yeah, I, I know who you're talking about Eunice or it's something like that. Yeah. 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 There you go. I like the Cotopaxi model. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a big corp and they're able to, I think that a lot of us get caught thinking of, you know, creating change on a global level, but mm-hmm understanding how we can have local impacts through our companies or whatever endeavor it is, is, is really powerful. So, yeah. you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm starting a company now called, called still spoke and it's really a creative platform with a bunch of my best friends hmm. film base, but we have this ecosystem around it. So if you will, we've got this hub that's, <laughs> that's film. And then the spokes are, you know, merchandise, artist collaborations, yeah. magazines, stuff like that. Cool. And it's all about, you know, if we tell a story, something like, the long traverse how can we partner with local stakeholders to create an initiative whether it's raising funds for them or hosting an event out there so mm-hmm. by by the spring we're, we're hoping to have an event out in koyama and yeah like i said maybe raise money for something like a community garden or yeah <laughs> or help create our outdoor recreation based economy out there mm-hmm. so yeah that's that's the lens i look at what i learned in college from and how i apply it to cycling yeah it's really interesting because the traditional sort of entrepreneur model, you know, people will think of like Bill Gates or someone who he made a lot of money in business and then he started like giving back and doing the social side of it. Whereas, yeah, I mean, it sounds like your approach is, is from the beginning kind of incorporating the two and being successful doesn't just mean like being personally successful. It means like your community succeeds and, and these important things around it are succeeding as well, which is, is really cool. Yeah. You know, I think it's, you know, it's different for everyone. I'm a, I'm a bike racer, right? I'm not a computer coder at the height of the internet boom, but <laughs> I think that wherever you are, there's like so much room to, to just be good in that and use whatever method it is, whether it's biking or coding to not think on a scale-based level all the time, right? Like think about who are the people around me and how can I, you know, help benefit them or how can they benefit me? You know, it's a, it's a reciprocal relationship and it's a sort of a paradox at times thinking of entrepreneurship 
in scaling things, right? And like creating, raising funds for whatever initiatives or whatever partners you want to get money from. But mm-hmm. at the core of it, it's got to be like, what am I doing right now? How am I doing it? And what qualities to bring into that? Because like that, especially in the in the sports space and in the outdoor space, like we need that approach desperately, you know, with, and against the backdrop of, of the climate crisis. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, you've done so many things in just the first 24, 25 years of your life. So what's, what's next for you beyond sort of this still spoke, because it seems like you kind of are always learning new things and trying new things. Is this something you're going to be doing like the rest of your life? Or, you know, do you think, do you see like other interests and and things you want to explore later as well? Yeah. Well, you know, my primary goal, you know, until 2024 is, is to try to win a medal at the Paris Olympics and Mm. it's the journey, not the outcome. You know, I I really want to like stick to my craft, which is riding my bike and Mm -hmm. playing on my bike, but also training and pushing myself in something like an FKT. So Mm -hmm. that's number one goal. And then using that to to kind of develop at this like real adult now, right? Like I'm out of college, like I'm in, you know, (laughs) setting up my life and being able to use the bike to frame that is really an incredible opportunity and something I'm so grateful for. Yeah. Like not many kids my age have the chance to do what they love like this. And it's not something I, I, I take lightly. It's, it's, you know, quite amazing, you know, and then being able to yeah, mix in something like still spoke, which will be a creative endeavor and is really supported by a lot of people who are the creatives, right? The filmmaker, art designer, photographers, and it's really a, co- a collective of sorts, you know? So mm-hmm. being able to support human focused pro- media projects and then that tie into community initiatives that's our goal. And, you know, the big, the best thing I can do right now is, um, <laughs> is let the, the, the people who are able to tell those stories to tell them and keep continue learning in that process. So there's so much I'm interested in outside of cycling, but right now I'm a cyclist and I love it. And this is what I'm doing. And who knows in three years after Paris, where I'll be at. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Christopher, thanks so much for taking the time to chat um, and sharing your story and also the story of others in the cycling world. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, last thing I'll I'll say is like, I've learned, you know, I've learned a lot this year, whether it was from college or this long traverse project. And I don't want to be, you know, I never want to be a professor sort of at a whiteboard. Um, (laughs) It's a group project, something we can learn together. And it's fun. Like it really is. And having fun on your bike is central to it. So Mm. I'm going to keep doing that. And I know people listening to this will as well. Yeah. Well said. Well, thanks. Well, you can view the long traverse on November 26th. um, And you can find out more about Christopher's projects at stillspoke.com. We'll have that link in the notes. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm